Hey everybody, welcome to the first video slash podcast in a series called Don't Look Back. And what this series is, is actually something that I've been asked about forever. I've been doing this for 10 years now on the YouTube channel, and I constantly get asked to kind of go back and look at older games that I reviewed and sort of reevaluate them uh, in a way. And if you look at the title of this video, it's kind of similar to something that the Dice Tower calls Look Back. Uh, but I'm not going to do it in the exact same format that uh, Tom does it over there. I will probably do this once or twice a year. And what I'm going to do is grab five games from 10 years ago, five years ago, and one year ago that are significant to me in a variety of different ways, something that sticks out, and then kind of go back and talk about, you know, whether it's in my collection, what do I think of it now, that kind of thing. Uh, the first one, I'm going to do 2011, 16, and 20. In the 2011 games, I have some that aren't technically 2011 games, but that's when I got kind of started doing the reviews. So there's a couple that are a little bit older, but I think are still relevant. Uh, so just to kind of bundle those in there. But for example, like I reviewed a choir in 2011, and that's from the 60s. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, if you have, you know, we still play that every once in a while. So there you go on that one. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to make a quick mention. I have partnered with uh, Sir Meeple Apparel Company, and he and I have worked on some designs together. And there's a bunch of t-shirts and stuff that you can go and get. Uh, they're not all drive-through review, drive-through game stuff. There's some other designs that we've worked on, uh, he and I, uh, that are just kind of general gaming designs as well. And he's also got a lot of other creators' uh, shirts and stuff like that on there. So definitely take a look at the link below. And uh, please go check it out and, and support us if you can. But we're, I'm super excited about that, and there'll be more designs uh, to come. So uh, let's just jump right into it. We're going to start with 2011, then do 16, and then do 20. And if you're listening on the podcast, I just want to give you a quick mention. We'll have more of a typical podcast coming out here in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I know I've been neglecting that. But let's jump in here to 2011. And the first game I'm going to talk about is Hansa Teutonica. Uh, this is one of the first kind of heavy, medium heavy Euros that I reviewed back then and really enjoyed it at the time, played the heck out of it. And I will say that my group has still been playing the heck out of it. Now, granted, this is 2021. We haven't been getting together that often. Uh, but up until the pandemic, we had been playing it relatively regularly. And I know some of the folks have been playing it over Tabletop Simulator. And it's one that I am not super excited to play but really that's not anything sort of negative about the game it's just that frankly we've played the heck out of it and also some of the expansions and stuff and i know recently they came out with like a big box version that has all the expansions that may have some new content in there as well it is it's pretty dry and it's really cutthroat and i like both of those things i don't mind a dry game and i really like a cutthroat game but i think for me I'm not super excited. So if the group was wanting to play it, and that's what you know everybody else at the table wanted to play, I would be more than happy to play it. If there were other options at the table, I would probably pick those over Hands of Teutonica. But again, it's not a negative thing. It's just we really have played it to death over the last 10 years. And you've got to be really you know, geared up for a very slice and dice, cutthroat, dry, Euro-style game. But it really does it better than just about any game of that style with that sort of like merchant shipping kind of theme where you're kind of making routes and just getting very abstracted victory points. Uh, it does it in an excellent way. Uh, personally, I burnt out 
but I would still recommend it to folks. But if they ask me, is it in your collection? No. Would you want to play it? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So anyway, that's Hands of Teutonica. Uh, the next one is Race for the Galaxy. Now, that was not a 2011 release. I believe it's 2007 or 8. Uh, but it is one that I reviewed back then, and I figured I would give it a mention here. Uh, so uh, this one, I've kind of gone back and forth on this. And sometimes that happens with a game where you kind of, maybe you start off not liking it, and then you start off, you know, then you like it, or maybe you like it, and then you don't like it. And when I first played this, I sort of forced myself to like it. Because back when I was kind of re-getting into the hobby in 2010 and 11. Uh, this was a game that I kind of missed because I wasn't really playing games for you know about four or five years there or something like that, and and when I came back to the scene, so to speak, I was like, oh, everybody's loving Race for the Galaxy, and I really like card games, you know, and San Juan and you know that kind of stuff, uh, and I was like trying to make myself like it because it's so obtuse with all the iconography and everything like that. And so once I kind of like pushed myself through that to sort of force myself to like it almost, I really did like it for a while. Um, and then Roll for the Galaxy came out, and I kind of liked that one a little bit better. And then New Frontiers comes out. This is probably two years ago. And right now, New Frontiers is my favorite of the trilogy. I really like New Frontiers. That was something I, I keep wishing to play more. This is one of those games where um, this isn't, isn't an important idea, but because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to play it more. This is the one game I'm like, ah, I wish I could get back to my group and, and bring this out and play it a lot more because I think my group would really enjoy it. I mean, they've played it, but I think if we got a chance to play it more and more and more, they would get more into it. Uh, so right now I would rank New Frontiers and then actually Race for the Galaxy. That's kind of repassed Roll for the Galaxy. And then Roll for the Galaxy would be third there, and I still enjoy Roll for the Galaxy. Um, the, the sort of the problem, again, I still really like Race for the Galaxy, but is the whole like exploration and digging aspect and digging the cards. And I've played most of the expansions several times. Uh, some of the later expansions only a couple times, but those first couple expansions in the base game, uh, I've played a lot. Uh, quite a bit, and, and even more actually when you consider the app and some of the other uh, programs that are out there. And the, that might be part of the problem is is playing a game so much digitally it can kind of burn you out on a game, honestly. Whereas if you never played anything digitally and you only played it maybe once or twice a month or something, you know, with your group, then it's going to have that sort of drawn out lifespan. Whereas if you crank through and burn through a game digitally, you're <laughs> going to get to the end of its life that much quicker sometimes, I think. And so for me, I think there's part of that, but it's also like this, okay, I have this hand of cards. I know like these three, four sort of combos to win kind of thing, or these sort of paths to victory. And I'm going to like crunch through the explore and then, you know, go that path. And so I've been through those different paths so many times where again, it's kind of burnt itself out on me. And maybe New Frontiers would have the same uh, type of effect. Now, the thing that Race for the Galaxy and New Frontiers have going for it is the whole kind of role selection idea. So there's a dynamic there that sort of sits on top of just a pure sort of, you know, card play, hand management, sort of building up your hand in your sort of tableau of cards that keeps those games kind of fresh and dynamic, where it's not just purely uh, of that. Um, but it also kind of bugs me. I can't just break out Race for the Galaxy with my family like I can with San Juan. And I, to me, uh, the games are so close in style. I mean, it, there's a complexity level to Race for the Galaxy, but I don't know if there's that much 
more vastness strategically. I mean, there's less variety of cards on San Juan, but it's still kind of the same same vibe, right? The same kind of deal. Um, but San Juan is one that I can leave on the shelf for a couple of months and then break it out and play with the family and it's going to refresh and there's no reteach or anything like that. So uh, again, I still recommend Race for the Galaxy, but again, one based on the app, playing it like hundreds of times or whatever, probably not hundreds, but pretty close, um, you know, that I've, I've sort of burnt out on. So that's my second one for 2011. Next one is a game called Biblios. And this one, I think it's still in print. It's probably in print from Yellow at this point. And it kind of goes in and out of print. But this is really just one of the all-time greats. And I still have this one in my collection. This is this is the first one in my on the list so far that I do. And it's got that sort of for sale, no thanks. Um, gosh, those other like old classic like filler games high society there's a whole bunch of them but biblios to me still stands out as probably my favorite out of all of those kind of style games and because uh, it has like a little bit of a drafting thing and an auction thing and a set collection thing but it's very very simple it's it's pretty mechanical where you're sort of just collecting different colored books uh with gold and then you kind of force draft for people. You're like, okay, I'm going to give you this card, and you know this card will be in the public. This one we're going to put in for the auction later. I'm going to take that. And you're constantly like reading and trying to card count what all the other players are doing, and the values of the different colored books that you're collecting can go up and down because there's these cards that will like manipulate these dice, which is sort of like the market value for those books. And so part of the card actions you can do instead of getting gold to purchase books later or getting the books themselves is manipulating the market value of those books. And so you might have a bunch of orange books, but they're only worth you know one if you have the most of those. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So it it kind of, in a way, sort of hits on and teaches a lot of the more complex interactions that you can see in a game, but does it in a really simple way and it makes it very uh, replayable and everything like that. So I would a million percent recommend Biblios just for any collection, honestly, whether you play with more you know, casual players or uh, advanced players or anything like that, because uh, this is gonna hit that sweet spot. It's gonna be a filler for the advanced player, and it's gonna, but it's gonna be a satisfying filler, I think. And for the casual player, it's, it could be something that you play a couple of times in a night, and then that could be kind of the, your meat and potatoes of the main game that you play that night. You just play Biblios a few times, and you can eat up a couple of hours doing that, playing that three, four times or something like that. Uh, I definitely recommend Biblios. It's fantastic. It's amazing. I think it was in my top 50 of all time, but I don't remember. I need to get around to doing another one of those. So the next one on my 2011 list is Castles of Burgundy. Uh, this is a game that um, my game group has loved, my family has loved, and I've loved. Uh, it's still in my collection, and I, it's you know one of my favorite Stefan Feld games, if not my favorite. You know, it kind of goes back and forth with Trajan and uh, some other games like that. Uh, but this is another one that I would recommend. It's a little bit easier to get into than most of Stefan Feld's other kind of big box games. Uh, if you're watching this video, you've you probably heard of it, so I'm not going to belabor too much. But if you haven't, you can go check out my review or anybody else's review of it. It's a real simple game. You roll two dice, which gives you kind of the actions that you can do for your turn. And you build this little like village for yourself and combo buildings off to each other as you place them next to each other and build little river spaces and pastures and uh, special ability tiles and all that kind of stuff. 
to just kind of sort of compound the points over the course of the game. Uh, so this is really, this might be like the first point salad game that was kind of coined that term. Uh, and I think it's probably okay in this in this case because that's what you're trying to do, sort of snowball your points as you as you move along the game. But it's really fun. It's just a very satisfying kind of tactile little point munch uh, that you that you can play. So Castleberg, that one's still in my collection, still recommended. So the last one for 2011 is Urban Sprawl. Still have those this one in my collection. It's still one of my favorite games of all time. Not something that I've been able to get to the table in some time, not just because of the pandemic, but I probably hadn't played it. As it, as it is right now, I probably haven't played it for like two years. Um, so that I, I feel bad about that. I really want to play it again. Uh, it's not something my group is really into. A couple of them kind of like it, but nobody likes it as much as me. Uh, but this, to me, is the perfect quintessential like uh sim city uh city building style of game and it's very very different from a lot of these other games and the cool thing about this game and as i think chad jensen he did a great job with this he's a designer by the way um he put everybody at the table sort of designing and building and participating in the same city so we're all competing um, but we're all trying to sort of carve out our little areas in the city. And then we are going over the course of the game, uh, becoming like the mayor and the treasurer and all these different roles that you can get and getting all of these events thrown at you uh, over the course of the game. Because to me, that's how kind of uh, governmental life probably is, is once you get in there like, hey, I'm going to do all these things. And then all these catastrophes hit you. <laughs> And then you got to deal with that and like try to manage that in a certain way. Um, so at the, at the most ideal abstract level anyway. Um, so I really like this game. Uh, it's it just, it's got a cool like through the ages style drafting thing. It's got some proximity spatial placement where you're putting buildings next to each other and building out different districts. And you're really trying to exploit it in a, in a lot of senses as the player. You're trying to exploit this city and this development for your own uh, money and victory points and all that stuff. So it does have some of those kinds of, you know, extracurricular corruptible types of layers uh, in the game. But you got to watch out for uh, you know, things hitting you from the blind side, which is what I like. I mean, I really, that's one of the main knocks about this game is that you can get like a strew of events that, uh, or slew of events. Um, and just kind of, we'll kind of, kind of throw you sideways where as a first play that can kind of throw you off and the game can take like three hours. So, uh, but if you can get through that, I think there's a really a lot of joy to be had playing urban sprawl. So I definitely still recommend it. Definitely not everybody's bag, but I'll, I'll die on that hill. <laughs> All right, so that's 2011, and so now we're going to jump forward five years up into 2016, and this was there was a real kind of shift for me, and I think kind of in the gaming landscape around this time of period. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into some of these games here. Uh, the first one we'll talk about is called Escape Room in a Box, and I think this was the first Escape Room style board game uh, that was out there. This was a Kickstarter project. And I actually was at the time sent the prototype and played through it with my youngest son at the time. And he, uh, he and I played through it and we really had a blast with it. Uh, he's done some escape rooms uh, with me, like you know, real escape rooms, and he enjoys those. And uh, this was such a really cool game because it was a lot like a real escape room. And this had a physicality to the components that you don't really see too much, although the games have really evolved from this point of view. 
over the course of the years. So like you have Unlock, which uses an app, and you have the Escape Games, which uses uh, some like... Uh, I don't know how to explain this, but like different like origami and stuff with the different tearing of components and all that kind of stuff. And there's been some other games that use like these key systems, which are really cool. Uh, but this one had like real cool physical locks and and little uh, contraptions and puzzles and all stuff kind of crammed into uh, the box. So this is really kind of the kickoff of stuff that we've seen really carry forward for the last five years, I would say. Uh, it's been... Uh, probably not a big niche in the hobby, but I think it's been a, a, a relatively talked about and played and enjoyed type of thing, specifically with the Unlock and the Escape series. And then now with the Adventure series, you see a lot of these kind of more storytelling games now kind of maybe evolving out of that sort of the experience, the one-shot kind of thing, um, that kind of stuff. So Time Stories, I believe, came out around this time. Um, but I really enjoyed Escape Room in the Box. I know those same designers, they have come out with, I think, one or two other games after that. Um, but, I, you know, I've never gone back and played this because, obviously, you know, you play it once and then you're done. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of mark this as like, to, as like, hey, that was kind of the first kind of idea of somebody saying, let me take this Escape Room and then take it to the home and, you know, give folks an environment to play at the tabletop. Uh, really cool. Uh, so the next one on my 2016 list is Liberty or Death. This is one of the coin games. I believe this is probably the fourth or fifth. No, I think this was the fifth coin game to come out. And I don't have this one anymore. The only coin game I currently own is uh, Cuba Libre. So this, though, was back when I was kind of in the throes of my my coin play, my coin addiction. And I really burned through the first five or six of these uh, in the series and played them all multiple times and enjoyed, frankly, all of them. And I think that uh, Liberty or Death, if I had to kind of step back and argue, you know, what was probably the most, the best one, that's tough because Cuba Libre is the one that I could keep returning to. It's a little bit smaller in scale. Um, I like how the factions interact and, you know, the level of participation and engagement that the players will have with the different factions. And it's probably the best one that I like to play two player or solo even uh, Cuba Libre. But Liberty or Death is just such a different, you know, kind of conundrum of a game where you have, because it's basically about the Revolutionary War uh, of, of the United States trying to break away from England. So you have four factions there and they're all so different. I mean, you have sort of England and then the colonies there trying to break away. Then you have the French who don't even come into the game until like a third of the way through. Uh, they're participating in some way, but they don't really get involved and have a chance to even win the game until about a third of the way through. And then you have the Native American folks and they're in there sort of, I mean, they're kind of partnered with England at first and then, you know, it just kind of goes all over the place. Um, and so you have this, all these different kind of levels and perspectives and everything. It's just a really fascinating uh, experience. But in general, I wanted to bring this up because it is a coin game. There's been several coin games over the last five years, even more since this time. Um, none of them have really caught my interest except for Gandhi. I want to play that one because of just the, the idea and the concept of sort of nonviolent interaction in a coin game should be pretty interesting in terms of how you can like, you know, sort of move your influence around in a way that isn't like guerrilla warfare, you know? Uh, so that, that's a kind of interesting concept. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's Liberty of Death. Definitely recommend any of the coin games that look interesting that has a theme that you're like, oh, I want to get into that theme, pick the theme you like, and then you probably will enjoy it. Um, so there you go. 
Then the next one is Star Wars Rebellion, and I just wanted to bring this one up because this one's still in the collection. Um, uh, the group really enjoys this one. I really enjoy this one. Uh, we really enjoy this as a four-player game. Well, it's like two versus two versus two, and the scheming and the conniving and the sort of timing of the different actions when you played in a four-player really actually makes this game shine. I know the common sort of knowledge or or idea about this game is that it's really best at a two-player game. And frankly, I mean, I disagree with that, and I think my group disagrees with that uh, across the board. So if you have not played this four-player, uh, definitely give it a try. I would not um, let this scare you away. Because it, honestly, it's hard to get a two-player game down and played that goes about this long, because this will take you a good two, up into three hours to play it. So that's hard to do, at least in my experience, with two people. Um, although you would think maybe, you know, that would be true because it would be less players at the table. But if you have a kind of a typical kind of game night kind of thing, this is something that like, hey, four of us are going to go play this and the four of you guys can go play that one. Uh, so this will keep everybody engaged and will fit kind of in that same game night sort of uh, cadence, right? So I definitely recommend folks take a look at this. Um, the expansion is is really cool. I don't think it's a necessity. Um, I don't want to bog down with this. A lot of people don't like the combat in Rebellion. I think it's fine because the game isn't really about the combat. But I will admit that the combat in the expansion is pretty cool. It kind of makes it better. I just don't think it's a necessity um, to getting the game. So don't feel like if you get the game, like you have to get the expansion. I think you'll be just fine playing um, uh, the base game. Uh, and so anyway, so definitely get this. But if you keep expansion, I would get that too because it's cool. Uh, so that's Star Wars Rebellion. Now the next one is Warhammer Quest Silver Tower. And so this one, along with the next game on the list for 2016, is what really like forked my sort of road in terms of the games that I like to play. And uh, this is really the one that got me into playing miniature games in general. Uh, I don't really want to talk about Warhammer Quest Silver Tower. It's, it's a pretty good game, and it's fun. And, uh, and I've played it a lot since, actually, because uh, if you get some of the expansions for it, you can sort of come at the game a different way. It is something that you can replay um, in a variety of ways. And it's a kind of a fun thing. You can take a, basically any kind of group of characters you want and throw at it and play through it. It's a lot of fun. Um, the thing that got me and got me to put this on the list was you could download the War Scrolls for the Age of Sigmar war game for the folks that were, you know, the miniatures that were in the Silver Tower game. And so that's how I got into that game was because they kind of did this like bait and switch kind of thing. Not really bait and switch, but like the hook and sink kind of thing. We're like, okay, here's this cool, you know, dungeon crawl board game. It's like, oh, but you can go download this, these rules for free and these war scrolls for free and play on the table. And that's what I did again with my youngest son as we played through it. And I was like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. You know, we just set up like some little terrain with some uh, cups and stuff like that and uh, played through a little game and uh, sort of broke out into the good guys and bad guys kind of thing and just went at each other. And it was a lot of fun. And so the, from that point, like, you know, um, yeah. So then that stage of Sigmar story was basically beginning from that point. Um, so that's why I just wanted to mention Warhammer Quest Silver Tower. Now, the next game on the list probably brought it more to the forefront, and that's Frostgrave. Uh, so I've talked a lot about Frostgrave on this channel. I don't want to belabor it too much. But this is really the game that I first was like, um, you know, Silver Tower kind of planted the seeds a little bit. But once... 
I will, was able to kind of put some miniatures together. And frankly, I use mostly, at the, or at the time, I would use mostly uh, Games Workshop miniatures there. I've kind of definitely branched out from there. Uh, but I've used that to kind of play through uh, the scenarios and the campaign stuff for Frostgrave. And that was really what pulled me in. It was like kind of that D&D fix of some of the stuff that I really kind of wanted D&D to be a little bit. But not really, because like D&D can go off and be D&D, and it's fine like that, and I enjoy it for that, the little bit that I've played of it. I haven't played a lot of it, but this was kind of like the other side of my brain, the tactical, magical, world-building sort of combat stuff, um, and just kind of playing through little combats and, you know... Uh, you know, maintaining your campaign and your characteristics and your little treasure hoard and your little base of operations and all that stuff. And all that kind of fun stuff was just something that was completely, as always, had always missed, passed me by uh, in my life. I'd never played Necromunda or Mordheim or any game like that before. Um, so this was the first kind of game like that where I was like, oh, wow, there's this whole, like, RPG-style tactical world of gaming that I've just not really you know, ever been exposed to. And Frostgrave is just, you know, is, I think it's still my bet, my favorite one out of that style of game. Um, I've played a lot since then. Um, yeah, it's still got to be, I think I did. It was my top 10 skirmish games. Uh, it was my number one. So I would still, yeah, recommend Frostgrave up and down. If you have like any couple of board games that have fantasy miniatures in it, just go pick that book up for 15 bucks or whatever it is. It goes on sale all the time. And throw some stuff down and boom, you go. You're done. <laughs> yeah, Frost. So that's my uh, last 2016 game was Frostgrave. Now, 2020 uh, was last year. So a lot of this information is is it's pretty new. Uh, but we'll go through these again because some of the stuff is like not really changed, but there's I have more thoughts on some of these games. So the first one is Flotilla. And this is one of the games I think made my top 10 of last year. And really have enjoyed it still. We've we played it again. And I will say, though, I don't think I had played it five-player at the time of the review. I'm almost certain of it. I'm not going to go look it up. But we did play it five-player. Um, we all got back together for like kind of a game day here after everybody got vaccinated. And uh, we was like, oh, let's play Because everybody really wanted to play Flotilla. We were super excited to play it. Uh, again. And we played five-player. That's a mistake. <laughs> I don't ever want to play it five-player again. Uh, three, four players, that's all, you know, three, four, five it plays. Three or four players I'll play it any any day, but five is, man, it just, so much can swing in it, so much can change. Um, it just kind of takes a while. And again, granted, I think there was one new player at the table who hadn't played it, and all of us were kind of rusty because it had been, you know, basically a year. Um, but it's just kind of too much going on with the market and everything, and it just, eh, I don't know. But... It was okay at five, but man, I really don't want to play it again with five. Like, it's hard to like talk about it negatively in that degree. It's just not something I'd want to do. I could see some people enjoying it with five, but man, we did not enjoy it with five whatsoever. Uh, but I still would, I think three has got to be the best. Now that we've played it some more, uh, the times where I've played it with three, I mean, four was good too. I played it with four and that was good. Four the most, though. Three's got to be the absolute best. It's just a really good, solid three-player game because of the dynamics of the market and stuff when you kind of flip back and forth. Um, if you're not familiar with it, this has this weird dynamic marketing type of thing where you can kind of flip from the 
the water world side to the sky side basically and that changes how you interact with the market and you can do that at any point in the game you can do it on your first turn you could never do it you can do it on your last turn or your, your eighth turn um, so that dynamic how it works in a three-player environment this is really really cool uh, so I recommend it for that, but yeah, stay away from it. Probably a five would be my recommendation. So that's Flotilla. Uh, another one that was one of the, uh, definitely one of the top, top games from last year is uh, Barrage. And this is one, man, I've continued to enjoy this one. Really uh, it has that cutthroat edge to it, which I really like. And it has that sort of coexistence thing where you're kind of piggybacking off each other and getting each other's way, kind of shipping in this water down this crazy pipeline of uh, of reservoirs and stuff like that in this crazy steampunk alternate universe uh europe kind of situation just a really really solid game this is one that we've got back um and played through tabletop simulator a couple times over the last year um and just really have kept enjoying this one and this one i can't recommend enough and this is one that's probably going to stay in the collection for a long long time uh, so anyway, that's Barrage. A lot of people have talked about it. I think it was on the top of some people's lists last year. And certainly it is uh, a great game. Uh, so the next one is The Crew. And I actually just played this again the other day. And I think that was the first time I played it in person. <laughs> because The Crew came out and then everything kind of went into lockdown. And I played it a lot on um, Tabletop Simulator. Although I, I couldn't figure this out the other day. I, f I feel like I would played it. But with, with my family... And I kind of remember them not liking it, but I played it so much on Tabletop Simulator for a while there that was like all we were playing. And I know a couple of people in my group have played through every mission and, and beaten every mission. I haven't been able to do that, but I played a lot of them, probably at least half of them, if not more. Um, and so we played this the other day uh, in person, and it was really fun. It was just a lot of fun again. And just has that... I don't know what... it's. So I, I want to say... New players can play this and enjoy it, but to me it feels like it's really targeted towards advanced trick-taking games, because it's sort of like a meta game, where you know it, the game is cooperative and it sets out these um, missions that you have to do, and to take tricks in certain ways, and certain people have to take cards in certain turns, and all these things, and there's all these little complex little interactions and things. So, I don't know. I think unless you're like a trick-taking sort of aficionado or something that you're really into, I don't know that people would really like this game. But there's a lot of trick-taking fans out there. Um, it's hard for me to say. I don't know that I would recommend this for new players that had never played a trick-taking game. But it could work because some of the basic missions are, are pretty simple. So, I think you could kind of get into it that way. But there's something to be said about some of the more medium and advanced uh, missions where you really got to turn on that trick-taking trick switch and be really counting cards. Because if you're not, if everybody at the table is not really in tune and in focus, you're just not going to beat some of those harder missions. Um, and maybe even some of the, the medium, you know, uh, difficulty missions. So, but really, something I really enjoy, if you're a trick-taking nut, I mean, you probably already have this. But, uh, anyway, yeah, that, that's that's the crew. Not really much to be said about that. I think it won a spiel to Zara something or other a year ago. And the next one is Fast Sloths. And this is a Freeman Freeze game. Came out from Stronghold Games over here. Uh, this is one that we've played more. Played it over Tabletop Simulator. Had a chance to play it with the family a little bit. And just really... 
uh, enjoyed this one more and more and more every time I played it. And it to me, it's it's a lot like a Ticket to Ride style game can be. And one of the neat things about Ticket to Ride is you can play it with the family, kind of play it easy going, and still have a lot of fun. And there's still some good strategy in the way you, you pull your cards and lay your tracks down. And this is a similar kind of thing where you're pulling up cards and you're moving your sloth around the board, collecting the food and everything, and utilizing the different animals. And you can play it in kind of a sort of friendly way, but you can really turn it on a dime and you can do the same thing with Ticket to Ride and just be out for blood. Um, and this has that aspect where you can, you can make some real sort of out of the box kind of plays where you're like, well, I need to hose this person up <laughs> because this, this is getting out of hand. There's a little combo of them moving around the board. And I like that. And I've had a chance to play it at multiple different player counts. And I really have liked all of the player counts. Probably two is the weakest because you want at least like three, four, five and they're just kind of mixing things up. Um, but it, it's really, really, I think it's, uh, I feel like it's been overlooked a little bit. Like to me, it's kind of like borderline could be a classic, you know what I mean? So uh, it's only been out in about a year or so and probably about two years at this point. But man, I really recommend this game, especially when you get a good mix of players at the table, four or five players, and you can just really kind of slice each other's throat. Um, and such a crazy, funny theme of, you know, having animals sort of carry your sloth around the board to collect food. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but it really, really works and it's just really fun. So definitely still recommend that one. Uh, last one here for 2020 is the uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak. And this is one that I've had a chance to play a little bit more pretty recently. I played it, I don't know, about a month or so ago on, uh, not Tabletop Simulator. I think it was on, I think it's on Board Game Arena or Utah or something. We played on there. And, um, I still really like the game. I still really, I would recommend the game. Although it's become a little bit sort of abstract and um, not luck driven, but you kind of can see when the players are all playing at the same premium optimum level. It's like whoever kind of flops that good artifact or something or flops that good uh, monster tile at the end or something. You know what I mean? They're going to be the one that wins. So again, this is one that sort of suffered in the same way as like Race for the Galaxy or something like that, where having been able to play it sort of online a whole bunch and kind of grind through it, it kind of just it just wears the shine off of the game a little bit. Um, but again, it's something that where if I kind of would put it away for a couple of months and play it again, then I'd, I'd be happy to play it because I really enjoy it. Now, I don't own it anymore. And I know this always gets compared to like Dune Imperium. Uh, personally, I prefer Dune Imperium because, again, it's got that nasty cutthroat, you know, throat slice to it. Um, and I kind of find the deck building a little bit more interested in, in Dune Imperium, whereas in Arnak, it's a little bit... I don't know. It kind of feels sort of bolted together. Where it kind of does feel like that in Dune Imperium too, but after you play it a little bit more, it's it's a little bit more nuanced, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so Lost Wars Arnak would be one that I don't have anymore. I still enjoy it, but it's kind of been replaced in a way with Dune Imperium. Uh, although it's not really fair to compare them because they're they're two different vibes. Although the mechanically they're very similar, but the vibe of them is very different. Um, but yeah, so after you played Arnak a few times or several times, um, let's I'd probably let's let's talk about player count here or play count in this case. I think I've played it, gosh, at least twelve times, right? So right around 10, 12 times, and that's about where the kind of the shine is completely off for for me. Now, granted, some of those were through the online, so the accelerated pace of play kind of does that. 
So, but again, I still recommend it. It's just not something that's really stuck around for me beyond those, you know, 10 plays or so. All right. So there's kind of my, uh, don't look back, but I'm looking back, but don't, don't look back. is one of my favorite documentaries. <laughs> so, um, if you haven't seen it, I don't know if you, I wouldn't even recommend people go watch it. Cause it's, it's a very targeted niche uh, documentary in the 1965 Bob Dylan tour of London. So yeah, it's kind of a niche thing, but it's one of my favorite movies. Um, so I think I may do one of these later this year and kind of go back through. But honestly, after these five, it was kind of hard for me to drudge up stuff to talk about with some of these things. Um, you know, I didn't want to be like, oh, yeah, I don't play that game anymore. It was okay. And, you know, I kind of thought in my review or whatever, I thought, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good game. You know, and then, you know, what do you want to say about it? <laughs> like, yeah, it was pretty good. I just don't have room for it on my shelf anymore. Um, so that, so I may not do any more this year, but I might take some time and maybe something by the end of the year, do another one and go back and see if I can find like five games, maybe three games each or something like that that have some kind of significant kind of thing. Or if there's any suggestions or anything about, you know, a way to kind of change this format up, I'd be open to that. Uh, but you'll definitely see one in about a year from now, um, going back over 2012, 17, and this year. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so that's that, and uh, I'll talk to you guys later, thanks.